I love the dab. Did you guys see that? Like the, just a little like, oh, shout out, boom, dab, take that. A few months ago, our elders started to ask this question, what would it look like to create a culture of hospitality? Where like as a church family, we didn't just attend, but we gathered together and linked arms and hearts and not just showed up on a Sunday morning, but opened our homes and our lives to the people who we worship with. It was our conviction, not that we weren't that place, but that there were some ways that Jesus was drawing us deeper and, and inviting us to more, that this would feel more like a family. That's one of our values here is that we're, we're family together, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week as well. About that same time, my wife and I went out on a date night and we went and saw a movie. This will give you a little insight into just how nerdy we actually are. Um, we don't watch superhero movies, nothing against them, just not our jam. Um, I don't like anything with star in it, so Wars, Trek, not a fan, don't throw anything at me, don't send me emails, I'm having somebody screen all of them out anyway. So, no, um, but we went and saw a movie called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It was a documentary about Mr. Rogers, and I walked out of that movie with this like angst in my soul. I mean, my wife Kelly, she watched the entire movie with the Kleenex in hand, sort of dabbing her eyes throughout the whole thing, crying a little bit throughout the whole thing, and popcorn in the other hand, of course, but, <laughs> but I walked out of it with this like conviction, this thought in my head, what if church looked more like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Where there like, wasn't any sort of standard other than presence to be invited in. Where you didn't have to reach some sort of affluence level. You didn't have to have a certain color of skin. You didn't have to talk like a certain way or be from a certain place. And if you were there, you were invited. I walked out of that movie deeply touched and it stuck with me and it's helped to shape and form the next four weeks of our teaching series. We're going to be journeying together, but I want, in case you haven't seen the movie, I just wanted you to get a little glimpse. Here's the trailer. A television program for children made its unauspicious debut on station WQED in Pittsburgh. Its host, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers? Yeah. I want to tell you something. What would you like to tell I you? like you. I like you, my dear. Thank you very much for telling me that. You take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite. You have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, unlikely star, yet... It worked. Hello. I've always felt that I didn't need to put on a funny hat or jump through the hoop to have a relationship with a child. He was always trying to get a message across in every show. A week on death. What does assassination mean? A divorce. Some people get married, and after a while, they're so unhappy that they don't want to be married anymore. He was radical. I know everyone says that, but he was radical. They didn't want black people to come and swim in their swimming pools. My being on the program was a statement for Fred. A neighborhood was a place where, at times, that you felt worried, scared, unsafe, would take care of you. He had a singular vision of kindness and love. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all relationships, love or the lack of it. Children have very deep feelings, just the way everybody does. There must be times when you do feel blue. 
I'm not feeling blue right now, though. Me neither. <laughs> Won't you be my neighbor? Well, I suppose it's an invitation. It's an invitation for somebody to be close to you. The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. greatest thing we can do is help someone know that they are loved and capable of loving. How many of you watched Mr. Rogers at some point in your life? I did. I, I remember after I watched the film going back to try to remember an episode of it. And, and here's what, I, I can't remember any single episode of Mr. Rogers, but here's what I can remember. I can remember the way that I felt when I was there. I can remember the way that I felt when I watched it. Like it was just drawing me in. Like there was this sort of healing balm, this love that just sort of beckoned and said, come on, come a little bit closer. It's safe here. I don't remember any episode specifically. I remember the way that I felt. Fred Rogers, it's interesting. He actually, after graduating from college, went to seminary. His goal was to be a Presbyterian pastor. He graduated, I believe, from seminary, but decided to go into TV instead. And here's why he said he went into TV. He said, I went into television because I hated it so much. I thought, there's got to be some way of using this fabulous instrument to nurture those who would watch and listen. And he did so for over 30 years. Now, my guess is that you've heard some rumors about Mr. Rogers, because after he passed away, the rumors started to spread. Like, um, there's one rumor out there that he is a Navy SEAL in the Vietnam War and has like a ton of kills under his belt. Have you heard this? Another rumor was that the reason he wore sweaters, it wasn't a fashion statement, it was actually to cover all the tattoos that went up and down his arms. Both of those are false, by the way. There was another rumor that started to go around, you can Google this if you want, of Mr. Rogers giving kids the finger on his last television show. And there's this still shot from a video of him giving the finger, double-fisted finger. It's actually, though, he's counting, um, uh, you know, and he's counting for kids, and they stilled it and twisted it. I think it's interesting, when somebody starts to live in the way of Jesus, they hold a mirror up for us, don't they? And sometimes the way that they live convicts us. And it's easier to make rumors, isn't it? To sort of turn it into stories. He, could, he couldn't have been that good because we know we're not, right? And that's essentially what happened. There's this desire to tear people down because sometimes they hold a mirror up for us. But Mr. Rogers built an entire TV show for over three decades on one simple question. Won't you be my neighbor? It doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter what color your skin is. If you're present, you're invited. Won't you be my neighbor? And I walked out of that film going, I want church to be more like that. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table. Here's my, some of my hopes for this series. Some of my hopes for this series are that you might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of the universe says to you, won't you be my neighbor? That's one of my hopes. 
My hope is that our church starts to look a little bit more like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. My hope is that you would get here a little bit earlier. I know um, it's hard, but you get here a little bit earlier and hang out a little bit longer, and I know you've got brunch on the office end, okay? I get that, but that you just maybe spend 15 minutes hanging out and talking with people a little bit. My hope is that you'd open your house or your condo or your apartment to somebody who you don't know that well, that you'd invite them into your space your life a little bit. My hope is that if you're lonely, you start to find friendship. My hope is if you feel unloved, you start to feel somebody's arms wrapping around you. My hope is if you're a cynic, you start to say, if Jesus people are like this, I might want to explore more. My hope is that we would look a little bit more like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Because you may have noticed this, we live in a cultural moment that's as divided as it's ever been. You don't have to look too far to find ways that you differ from the people around you, whether it's religiously or politically or ethnically. There's a number of ways we can choose to draw our lines in the sand and define ourselves by what we are or by what we aren't. But I just want to propose to you, I think that's a tired way of living. And I think Jesus has more for us. In a moment where 46% of Americans report feeling lonely, maybe God is calling the church to be part of that healing balm that says, we have room for you around our table, in our homes, and in our lives. What if, what if, what if God wanted to use us to breathe a little bit of hope? Won't you be my neighbor? If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at this really famous story that essentially asks that same question. It's a man who comes up to Jesus, and my guess is if you've been around church, you've heard this story a little bit, and my hope is that you'd hear it fresh today. It's a story of a good Samaritan, and before we jump in, you just need to know that good Samaritan would have felt like an oxymoron to everybody in Jesus' original audience. You can't be good and a Samaritan. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But a man comes up to Jesus. It says on one occasion, we're starting in verse 25, Luke chapter 10. You there? Three of you are. Wonderful. (laughs) The rest of you look on with them. One occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, this was an honorable way for somebody in a synagogue or in a gathering to address a rabbi. You would stand up, And you would ask them a question. It was a way of showing respect. But Luke sort of tells us a little bit what's going on. He he wants to test Jesus, this man does. And he says this. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just a quick pause here. Two things. What must I do to inherit? You see anything wrong with that? I mean, what does anybody do to inherit anything? I mean, you're just a part of the family, aren't you? Like, what must I do to inherit Bill Gates' fortune? Well, you have to adopt me as one of his kids, which, by the way, if Bill, if you're, Melinda, Bill, if you're listening, I'm open to that, right? I'm 38 years old, I've got a family, but we're adoptable, right? Like, you could invite us in, this could happen, right? No, you, you don't do anything 
to inherit. But this teacher of the law, he's got these hints and shadows. There's something out there that I know I can't earn my way to, but that I long for with every fiber of my being. You ever felt that? And he says, here's what I want, Jesus. I want eternal life. Now, when we hear that, typically we hear, I want to go to heaven. But I don't think that's all of what this teacher of the law was talking about. For a Jewish mind, eternal life meant two things. It meant the kind of life that lasts forever and the kind of life that you want to last forever. Eternal life for a Jewish person was eternal in both quality and duration. The kind of life where you go, oh yeah, this is what it means to be alive. And I want that kind of life, this Zoe, this life that never ends. That's his question. How do I get that kind of life? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? What does Torah say? How do you read it? He replied, verse 27. And he answered, and this man probably had heard Jesus teach at some point in time. So he just poaches what he's taught about the greatest commandment. He says, well, here's the way I read it. Here's the way life comes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you get eternal life. Now, I grew up in a church, you may have too, where if you were to have said, okay, hit pause there, did he get the answer right? We would have said, well, no. How you get eternal life is you pray a prayer. You, you trust Jesus. You accept, you believe, you confess. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He failed. The only problem with that is Jesus. <laughs> You've answered what? Correctly. And I think they're talking about the same thing, Romans 10, verse 9, in this passage, in different ways. They're talking about the life that lasts forever, that you want to last forever, in very different ways. But Jesus says, you nailed it. You stuck the dismount. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you almost get the sense that this man starts to go, sort of a high bar there, Jesus. And so wanting to justify himself, wanting to make sure that he's okay, he asked Jesus, Jesus, this is an important question, who's my neighbor? If I draw that circle too big, Jesus, I don't think I get in it. So if I can draw it small enough, if my neighbor can be the people that I like, if the neighbor can be my family, but only the family members that I like, if my neighbor can be the people that talk the same as me, believe the same as me, look the same as me, if my neighbor can look a lot like me, Jesus, we're going to get this done. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. I found myself lamenting to our writing team, the right devos that go along with the messages. I wish, I wish he'd asked a different question. I wish, he'd, I wish he would have just been honest and said, I feel like I'm coming up short of that. What do I do then? I don't, I don't feel like I'm living that out. But I think the Good Samaritan does what many of us do. He wants to sort of protect his... Self. He wants to protect his accomplishments, his achievement. He wants to, he wants to be okay. And so he goes, let's, let's talk about this, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Can we draw that circle small enough that 
I can accomplish it. And Jesus says, well, that's an interesting question. Let me tell you a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by a band of robbers. Now, quick time out. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a small road. It weaved its way around mountain edges. Oftentimes, you could only fit one person the width of the road. It was called the way of blood back in Jesus' day. So the parable that Jesus tells, many scholars think Jesus isn't just telling a parable. He's telling a story that happened and that happens. It's 3,500 feet down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you're going, weaving your way down this little tiny track. And Jesus says, there's a man who was attacked. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him. He passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus has just taken the two stars of the Jewish faith at this point in time and essentially thrown them under the bus. So you have the priest, who's the upper echelon of the religious folk in Jesus' day, and you have their assistants, the Levites. Priests would have been often serving in the temple in Jerusalem for two-week stints, and so they'd spend time up there, and then they would finish their service for that season, and they would come back to their place where they lived, uh, in Jericho, for this man's life. You'd often be coming back with your pay, which was grain, and which was food, or goats, or sheep that you were going to give to your family. It was the way that you got paid for your temple services. And so the priest and the Levite, they have some issues, They have issues with this person that's along the side of the road. He's beaten, maybe to a pulp, not understanding if he is a Jew or if he isn't a Jew. See, if he were a Jew, the priest or Levite would have had to stop to help him. That's their neighbor. But we don't know if he's a Jew because he's beaten so badly. And so the priest is bound to duty, but duty can only take you so far. Duty can only do a certain amount in your life. It can't transform you. It can only hold you to a certain set of standards. And what Jesus seems to be winking and nodding at is duty isn't enough to live the kind of life that I'm calling you to live. Well, here's the other problem. The other problem is that if this man is dead and this priest or Levite touches him, he's going to be unclean, which meant that they would have had to turn right back around walk the 18 or so miles back to Jerusalem to go into a week-long process of becoming ceremonially unclean. Not only that, but the grain or the goats or the sheep that they had with them as part of their payment, those would have been unclean too. So we would have lost all of his money. And so the priest is in this predicament. The Levi's in this predicament. Am I going to hold to my religion or am I going to care for the people around me? Am I going to be religious or am I going to show compassion? You almost get the sense that Jesus pauses at this point in the story and says, that seems like it should be a false dichotomy. It seems like we shouldn't have to choose whether we're going to uphold our religion or love the people around us. If that's the case, maybe we've got something wrong. 
Well, if you're a Jewish person, you're expecting, I see where you're going here, Jesus. A priest, a Levite, they both fail. But I know, I know where you're going. It's going to be the Jewish layperson who comes through. It's going to be the, just the normal Joe Schmo of Judaism. He's going to be the star of your show. You might know the end. It's not how it goes. It's called the Good Samaritan for a reason. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion on him. Like literally, his insides turned with empathy for this man. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, the next day, he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every extra expense that you have. Good Samaritan was an oxymoron for the Jewish people. See, for the Jewish people, they, they, had, they were at odds with the Samaritan race. See, a, a number of centuries before, seven centuries before, 722 BC, the northern kingdoms, 10 tribes in the north were taken off into captivity in Assyria. Some people were left back, though. Some people were left there. And what happened was the Assyrians imported people to breed with the Jewish people who were left so that they could essentially extinguish the race. And so the Samaritans were half Jews, half Assyrians. But the Jewish people, who they would say the true Jewish people of the two tribes that were left, the tribes of Judah, who were carried into Babylon a number of centuries after the northern kingdom was taken away, they said to the Babylonians, oh, no, 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 we are not going to intermarry. We're going to hold true to who you've called us to be the people of God. And so when they were taken into exile, they refused to marry. So Jewish people saw Samaritans as sellouts and Samaritans saw Jews as racist and cruel. And that cycle that was seven centuries old continued in Jesus' day. A good Samaritan? This cannot be. And Jesus ends... Well, which of these, teacher of the law, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, which one do you think? And he says, well, it was the Samaritan, right? Only that's not what he says. Read what he says. The one who had mercy. I can't even say his name. The the one, that guy. You know Jesus. You told the story. It's the protagonist. It's that guy. He's the one. He's the one who showed mercy. See, Jesus in his brilliance does two things in one story. He universalizes neighbor. It's anybody. There's no drawing the circle and coming up with a certain set of standards of people that can be your neighbor, that if they look like you, talk like you, believe like you, then they're your neighbor of your family or your friends, then they're your neighbor. Jesus goes, no, 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 no. It's, it's anybody. He universalizes neighbor, but in the same story, he particularizes the stranger. It's not just anybody. It's anybody you see right in front of you. That's your neighbor. And notice, notice, Jesus does not answer the man's question. 
This is a story about the art of asking the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything to inherit. Who is my neighbor? Notice Jesus doesn't answer that question. He doesn't say, well, this is your neighbor. He asks, who was a neighbor? As if to say, we're asking the wrong question if we want to know who our neighbor is. The goal is not to identify or define our neighbor. It's to become neighborly. It's not to draw the circle smaller so that we feel like we can justify ourselves and beat our chest a little bit and feel like we're okay. It's to become the type of person that has room for the other in our life, compassion that we act out on, not just hold in our hearts. All throughout the scriptures, there's this discussion that goes on about neighbor. There's different words that are used. One of them is this word, Philozenos. Will you say that with me? Philozenos. It's two Greek words put together. It's the word philo, which is a word, anybody know? Love. Wonderful. Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. And xenos, which is the word stranger. Love of the stranger. It's commanded all throughout the scriptures that followers of Jesus would be people of philozenos, that we would love the stranger. It means that we have room in our lives, in our homes, around our tables for the person that we don't know yet. Hospitality means, or neighbor means primarily, the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Now, we often think of hospitality that it has to do with food. This is the way I would say it. In the same way that worship is more than singing, but it's rarely less, hospitality is always more than food, but it's rarely less. It often involves a meal. Just look throughout the scriptures. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. The term hospitality, philozenos, is where we get our English words hospital, hotel, hostel, hospice. That's the word, philozenos. Here's the, here's the other word, though, that's contrasted with that, xenophobia. Will you say that with me? Xenophobia. That means fear of the stranger, fear of the one who doesn't look like me, who I have a few questions about, we have a few disagreements Fear of them. Did you know that you cannot have fear of your neighbor and love of your neighbor at the same time? So what Jesus is calling us to is a fundamental attitude towards the other that says we have room in our hearts and in our lives for you. Exactly the way that you are. We don't offer hospitality in order to change people, but we create space where they can change. I love the way that Philip Halley, an ethicist, said it. He spent years studying the human capacity for good and for evil. And he concluded, the opposite of cruelty is not simply freedom from a cruel relationship. It's actually hospitality. Henry Nouwen, in his wonderful book, Reaching Out, that's one of our recommended resources for this series, he said this, if there's any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential... It's the concept of hospitality. Um, so I, I've had a few weeks to get my heart and my mind around this series. 
And I just want to stand before you and say, I, this is not one that I feel like I'm sticking the dismount on personally. I, like, I've been challenged, I've been convicted that hospitality hasn't been something that I've been great at offering. And I think as I've tried to think about why, I think there's this sense in me like I, I just didn't need it. Like I had some healthy friendships. I have some healthy friendships. Um, I have a healthy family. And I haven't the sense the need to invite others into my life. And I felt really convicted by the Spirit of God because I feel like this is an area in my discipleship that I need to continue to grow. Because it's not about whether or not I need it. It might be about whether or not other people need it. And it might be about what God wants to do in my heart and soul as I offer it to other people. So maybe you're in the same place. Maybe you hear hospitality and you think Pinterest and you go, I can't do that. Right? That's not me. And I just want to invite you to push back against the voice of guilt and shame, if you're like me, that might rage when we talk about hospitality and to push back against it and say, God, convict me where I need to be convicted so that you might lead me to the way of life that lasts forever. God, we want to be the kind of people who love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who love our neighbor as ourself. Amen? So what does that look like? What does that look like? If Jesus says, listen, love for your neighbor looks like more than just the people who look like you, talk like you, act like you, believe like you. That's the way he told it back in the first century. I think he might tell the story a little bit differently today in our society. See, they had this sort of foundation of hospitality that was required of them. It was part of their culture. It was something they did whether they wanted to or not. It's not a part of our culture. So if you're like me, it may be something that you don't do all that often. I think Jesus, if you were to tell the same story today, I think he would say, let's just start with like your literal neighbor. You know that person that lives right next door to you? That as a crow flies, sleeps with, le- sleeps with their head on a pillow less than 100 feet from your head. Like, let's just start there. That guy, the guy in the apartment right next to you, that person, who is that person for you? Think about it for a moment. Get their picture in your head. Because if we assume that the neighbor is everybody, it's easy to make her or him nobody. For this story to press on us like it did for the original audience, we have got to take love of neighbor out of the metaphor, out of the ethereal, out of that sort of nameless, faceless person and put it into real love. That's what God is calling us to. He's not calling us to agree with him and go, yeah, I think we should love our neighbor. That's a really good thing. He's calling us to do it. You know, sometimes church feels like um, uh, sort of this fictitious picture of going to the gym, right? Where you go, imagine going to the gym and you head in there in the morning, right? And you're ready to work out. You're like in your workout clothes and you get in there, 24-hour fitness, and they're like, hey, grab a seat, grab a seat. And you have somebody who's just like ripped. Imagine that that's me, okay? Um, and, they're, and they're like, hey, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. This workout is going to be amazing. This is going to be great. You're going to get ripped. You're going to get shredded. It's going to be unreal, have a great day. God bless you. And he just walked right out and didn't do anything with it. 
And then he went the next day and they were like, all right, we're going to work the legs today. We're going to, we want to be equally yoked up top and bottom, right? Like we're going to, we're going to get after it. It's going to be amazing. You're going to do great. You're going to do wonderful. You're going to, it's going to be, you're going to be a beautiful person when we're done with this. Goodbye. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Does church ever feel like that? We sort of get pumped up and we're like, well, Jesus what do you want us to do with that? I read a book recently where this guy and it said, and man, most followers of Jesus think praying for their enemies is a great idea. Very few of them actually do it. Most followers of Jesus think being a neighbor is a great idea. I think very few of us actually do it. It's easy to have metaphoric love for a metaphoric neighbor. But that isn't what Jesus is calling us to. Look at the way that the Good Samaritan lives this out. He saw him, he went to him, he bandaged him, he put him on his donkey, he brought him to an inn, he returned to check on him. This is real love for a real neighbor. One of the ways you can know if you're offering real love to a real neighbor is whether or not it costs you anything. Because what Jesus says is, or the scriptures say about Jesus is, we know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. It cost him something and therefore we should lay down our lives for others as well. Here's what, if, if you're looking for something to do this week, can I encourage you? Um, maybe turn your little bulletin over, turn uh, the note sheet for the sermon over and just draw a tic-tac-toe board on the back of it, will you? Even if you're not following along on the notes, just, just flip it over and draw a tic-tac-toe board on the back of it. Don't play tic-tac-toe. <laughs> you can if you want to. but And just write me in the middle of it. Just write me in the middle of it. Here's something I'd love for you to do this week. I'd love for you to spend some time and think through, man, who are my neighbors? Like real names. And see how many of these boxes of people that live around you, if you live in an apartment, you're like looking like a cube, right? You've got to do a cube. But um, who are your neighbors? Real names. Not like, I think that guy's name is Bobby. It could be Bobby. He should be Bobby, right? No, like real names. 10% of people can actually do this. Fill out every box. Only 10%. So if you're part of the 90 like me, no guilt, no shame, but what I'd love for you to do is say, Jesus, which one of these houses might you want me to get to know a little bit? And you might have to eat some crow. You might have to go up to him and say, hey, listen, we've been neighbors for the last five years. I've asked you your name before, but I don't remember what it is. What's your name? That's a hard conversation. I know because I had it. <laughs> but it's important. Real love for a real neighbor actually demands that we know their names. So maybe by the end of the series, in the next four weeks, maybe you have more of these boxes filled in. Here's a question for you. Why do you think Jesus picked a Samaritan as the star of his story? Like, really, if Jesus' only point in the story of the Good Samaritan is you should love your neighbor, he doesn't need the Samaritan to be the star of the story, does he? It could be a Jewish layperson. It could be somebody. It could be anybody. But he picks a, a hated person as the protagonist of his story. Why does he do that? 
I think he wants to suggest to you and I that the us versus them divide is trite, is tired, and should be done away with. The us versus them is no way to live. Drawing a line in the sand and saying we're against you because of X is not the way of Jesus. <laughs> First service didn't do that. You're more spiritual than them, right? So I think here's what Jesus is doing. Why does he pick a Samaritan? Because he wants us to realize that kingdom allegiance is greater than tribal adherence, than just going along with the party line, the divisions that keep us apart. Well, I'm progressive and I'm conservative. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm an American. You're not. I'm a Christian. You're not, right? And so he goes, ah, why don't we make the Samaritan the star of the story? The Samaritan's the one who's becoming neighborly. The Samaritan's the one who's living in the way of Jesus. You wonder if he just sort of stood back and went, <laughs> take that. Okay, just two things for you. And can I just invite you to look up at me for, for just a moment? You do not have to agree with people to love them. You don't have to agree with people to love them. Does God love you? I believe that with every fiber of my being. God loves you. Does God agree with you in every way? Probably not. And we don't all agree with each other, so it's impossible for God to agree with all of us, right? He loves you, but he doesn't necessarily agree with you. You don't need to agree with people to love them. Look up at me for just a moment. Look up at me. Come on. We have got to get this right, you guys. I believe that followers of Jesus are getting run over in our cultural moment because we've lost sight of this. Here's the second thing. You do not need to agree with people to treat them with dignity, with value, with kindness, and to recognize the image of God within them. You don't. You don't need to. You don't need to agree with them in order to do that. And I, I don't know about you, but I want to be part of a church that says, won't you be my neighbor? We've got all sorts of differences. We've got things we don't agree on. But, but, and maybe it's not anything that they just hear while they're here. Maybe it's like me watching Mr. Rogers. I don't remember one episode. You may not remember one sermon, but I hope you remember the way that you feel when you're here. And I hope the way that you feel is, man, there's something about these people. They care for me. They love me. They're for me. They're going to be with me in the hills and the valleys. And so Jesus looks at this man and the man replies after Jesus said, well, which do you think was the neighbor? And he says, oh, the one who had mercy, the one who had compassion, the one, the one whose who's insides like turned when they saw this man and, and he did something about it. He acted on it. That, that's the guy who was neighborly. Can't even say his name, the Samaritan. And Jesus responds with this really simple mic drop moment. Wonderful. Go and do likewise. You should do that. You should, be, you should become that kind of person where your religion doesn't keep you from loving, 
where, where mercy is greater than religiosity. If it was, in fact, it, I'll be ceremonially unclean if I touch that dead body. If it was the fact that, man, if, if this guy's Jewish, I need to help him. If he's not, then who cares, right? And what Jesus says is, no, 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 mercy triumphs over religion. It's not just about what we can do to appease God. It's about actually living in the way of Jesus. That's what he is inviting us to. Look up at me for a moment. One last time. One last look up, I promise, okay? I've been off for two weeks. I get three look ups today. Okay, in all seriousness, if your religion prevents you from loving, it's not from Jesus. If your religion prevents you from loving, it's not from Jesus. And you go and you look, just read through the Gospels, look at every time Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Could he have healed on Sunday the next day? Not a trick question. Yeah, sure, he could have. Why does he do that? Because he wants to break down the systems that oppress people instead of lift people up, that rob people of life rather than the things that bring people life. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's chipping away at religiosity and saying, mercy is better than religion. Mercy is better than religion. You go, you read through the story of Je- that Jesus tells of the two men praying in the temple, and it says about the Pharisee, to some who are confident in their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else. We've got it all together, and you, man, you need some help. No, friends, we all need help. I hope that's the banner we gather under when we come together. And it's that humility that actually is the birthplace of being neighborly. So the question isn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, Am I becoming neighborly? That's where Jesus wants to lead us. What if you started with the conviction that, man, Jesus has me exactly where he wants me for a reason? That as Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27 says, he's appointed the times and the places that people would live so that some would reach out and find him. Listen, what if, what if, what if you didn't just by happenstance choose the house that you're in, the apartment that you're in, the condo that you're in? What if Jesus has a reason for you being in that very place and that his reason is you might be a conduit of his grace and his mercy and his love to strangers, people you don't know yet, but that he might invite you or call you to open your life to. So in a world full of divisions and fissures and fractures, I just want to end by saying one thing. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your rich neighbor. Love your poor neighbor. Love your gay neighbor. Love your straight neighbor. Love your dirty neighbor, love your clean neighbor. Love your loud neighbor, that's my family. (laughs) Love your quiet neighbor. Love the neighbor you like, love the neighbor you don't like. Love your neighbor, period. And just like he did all throughout the first, second, third century, I think Jesus might just use his church to transform the world. I want to end by giving you just a few practices, and then I'm going to invite Yvonne up. Yvonne, will you come up? She's going to lead us in an imaginative prayer exercise to end, because I think we need some handles for this message so that it's not just an idea. But here's a few things that you could do this week. 
Um, I, I would encourage you to fill out that block map. No guilt, no shame. Just fill it out honestly and just start praying over it. And maybe this week you start prayer walking around your neighborhood. And as you do so, just introduce yourself to people. Say hi to them. Get to know them a little bit. Make that a part of your practice. It's good for your health. It's good for your witness. It's good for everything. Um, I'd encourage you, download the Nextdoor app. You'll get connected with a bunch of people in your community. If you're not already, you'll find out things that are going on. I found out things that were going on um, in my neighborhood that I celebrate, that are awesome, that are great. Maybe you open your house, have people over for dinner, lunch, whatever. What might Jesus do to say to you, come on, come a little bit deeper? What does it look like to become a neighbor? And then, um, actually, I want to do something. I've got uh, two gift cards to Einstein's bagels, um, and it's got enough on it for you to get 24 bagels and schmear and coffee, and it's for you to bring into your office. So just a way for you to be a neighbor in your office. Who wants to do it? I, and I'd love to just, Ariel, you got it. Um, I, I'd love to hear sort of the story if anything happens from it. Anybody else? Yeah, Allison, done. You're, off, you're gonna give this just to Aaron. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Aaron comes into church with 24 bagels. <laughs> We're like, we'll take it, we'll take it. Hey guys, um, I just wanna invite you Let's just spend a moment um, asking Jesus, what, is, what does he want us to do with that? How does he want us to live this out? I've asked Yvonne to lead us in that. Yeah, as Ryan said, there are lots of ways that we can demonstrate a heart that is neighborly to those around us. And, and so Ryan asked that I would just lead us in a time where before we exit the doors and maybe over lunch we talk to our families or our friends about how convicting this message is. Let's just spend a little bit a little bit of time with Jesus and and see what he has to say and what he might invite us into in this week. So first we'll just pause and and still our hearts. Jesus, we welcome you into this time. We know that you're already here, but we ask that you would speak to our hearts today and give us direction as to how to take this message into the rest of our lives. So if you want, you can close your eyes and and imagine yourself with Jesus on that day. Excuse me, Jesus. I'm curious about this life that you've been teaching about. Yeah, what would, what would someone like me have to do to receive that kind of life? Jesus turns gently to look your way. Well, what have you heard? What's written in the law I've given you? You pause and think to yourself, hmm, I guess it's love. Isn't that what we keep hearing you talk about? Loving God and loving others? Yeah, 
I've heard it said, and I even heard it today, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, with his kind eyes, he leans a little closer. Do this, and you'll live. You lean back, taking this all in. Inside, you say to yourself, okay, what does that even mean? That's a grand idea, to love my neighbor as myself. But it still feels kind of vague. Okay, but who? You hear the words coming out, but it's too late to stop. Who? Who exactly am I supposed to love? Who is my neighbor? Half smirking, Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Let me invite you into the story. There are already people in your life that you can make space for. This may be hard. There may be some unspoken things between you and these people. Maybe some of these images may resonate. Maybe sporting alliances. Maybe that house that seems to have everything. Or the people that live down the road in a tent. Maybe the barrier is political. Your perspectives are different and it's hard to understand them. Maybe it's those people that you feel justified to feel against. God has created so many people. All that he's placed his image upon. And there is someone in your life that that Jesus may be inviting you to be a neighbor to today. Or this week or this month. So take a moment and ask Jesus quietly within your heart to reveal a face. Someone whom you can be merciful to. Jesus turns once more to you and says, remember the story of the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Amen. So Jesus, we do, we want to become people who genuinely in real ways love the people that you've divinely placed around us. So give us your heart, we pray. Give us your mind. And Lord, as we step out and practice this week, would we see you move in both our hearts and in the lives of the people around us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.